Father God, we come into your presence and um, we believe that you are a holy God, which means that you're different than us. And because of your righteousness and your holiness, um, it's miraculous that you even allow us to come into your presence and talk to you. And we're grateful for your washing of sin from our lives through your son, Jesus Christ. We confess our sin to you. And because of your faithfulness and your justice, God, we know that you will cleanse us. And so we just come to you right now in a time of asking you to remove anything that would distract us from hearing from you, any sin, anything that's even less important than hearing from your word right now. God, I just pray that you'd remove those things from our mind and you'd speak to us directly, speak to our hearts, speak to our minds, speak through my lips. Give me the exact words for those that are here at this 1030 service. And God, will you please speak exactly into circumstances that I don't even know that are happening because it's by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, we live in a very interesting culture. It's oftentimes called a consumer culture, uh, which means we've got a plethora of opportunities to pick between different products. In fact, we've got so many products that we even have knockoffs of the products that are products. And so you've got real brand, you've got like the original, the authentic, and then we've got knockoff brands. And you look and it's hard to tell unless you're like an expert in certain things. You know, there's fake Rolexes, there's fake purses, and there's real purses. And they've done such a great job even with knockoffs now. Sometimes it's hard to tell even fake leather. You know, they've got fake pleather. <laughs> and I don't know if it's fake pleather, but it's pleather instead of leather. And, and there's all these things that are out there. And food, I was reading this week. And I don't know if you're a sushi person or not. I'm not a sushi person, so don't invite me. But they're, they're, if you're a sushi person, I was reading this week that actually a lot of sushi restaurants are advertising that they're putting red snapper in their sushi, which is a, a good fish. And they're actually putting tilapia in there, which is a much more common and much more inexpensive fish. But unless you're really a sushi person, you probably don't know. Unless you have a really sophisticated palate, you have a hard time probably discerning the real thing from the fake thing. And that can be true in so many areas of our culture because there's so many options. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm a news junkie. This is something that I'm into. I like to know what's going on in the world around us and watch CNN, watch Fox, watch the different news shows and read different stuff, different articles. But you ever watch a news show and they're talking about one news event and, you know, something in the Middle East or economic crisis or different things that are happening. And then there's like headlines that run along the bottom. Do you ever see those headlines that run along the bottom and think to yourself, no way. Like, that did not really happen. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Sometimes it's hard to discern between real stories and fake stories. And so I want to test whether or not you can discern between the real and the fake. And so we're going to put up here some news headlines for you. And I want you to tell me which one you think is the fake one. And we'll start here uh, with the bottom left. Robot to attempt Hawaii triathlon. So one option for you to consider. Man eats his weight in meatballs. Another headline on there. Pumpkin found hanging in pear tree in Iowa. And it's about a woman here, but the title was, She Hasn't Clipped Nails in 18 Years. Wins record. <laughs> Congratulations. Uh, but anyway, which one do you think? Told you last week I like interaction, so you got to give me some feedback here. Which one do you think is the headline that's the fake headline? Pumpkin. Got lots of pumpkins out there. Anybody else? What else you got? Robot. And the fake one is? Man eats his weight in meatballs. All right, way to go. Sometimes it's hard to discern the real from the fake. We'll do one more round and show you some pictures here. Look at these two pictures. Got the Cooper on the side over here. Got the airplane over here. You know which one you think is the fake? Go ahead, even in Theater 14, shout it out. What do you got? And the answer is... What? Yeah, that's right. I, I didn't take the picture, but I found the picture. And, and that's, sometimes it's hard to tell, isn't it? between the real thing and the fake thing. 
And you think about all the different areas there are. There's a big thing that's happening now in China uh, where they're copying up fake Apple stores. They're selling real Apple computers. I have no idea if there's a discount. Don't ask me. But I was reading articles this week about these fake Apple stores. You can go into a store, and it looks just like Steve Jobs designed the deal. But when you go to the Apple website, they're not a location that's listed on there. Sometimes it's hard to tell the real from the fake. You think about meals, you think about food, you think about brands, you think about so many things that are out there, these pictures, news headlines, sometimes it's hard to tell the real from the fake. But there's one area where I think that we would all agree that we would believe that we know the difference between the real thing and the fake thing, and that's relationships. And you think about the relationships you have. I know many of us, we have a lot of associations with people. We bump into a lot of people at work, at church, and think about church. Church can be a place where you would think you could sniff out fake relationships, wouldn't it? And hopefully it doesn't happen here, but have you ever been at church and somebody comes up to you and you can just tell it's kind of a fake thing and they're trying to pretend like they're really concerned for you? Like they come up, oh, I was just praying for you the other day. What's their name, honey? You know, it's like, I don't even know your name. What's happening there? Or sometimes somebody will come and they'll decide, I'm going to pour out my heart. This is like the first person that listens, I guess. And they start pouring out their heart and then they get this, I'll pray for you. And you start to walk backwards. You know what that means? Stop telling me this stuff. I don't know what to tell you. Don't want to know anymore. Shut that down. I don't know if they'll actually pray for you or not. I can't vouch for that. But don't you just sense sometimes like the phaco meter starts to go off a little bit? And we think that we can sense that. And if you can sense that, then I ask you, how many real relationships do you have? Where do you have the real thing? Maybe with sibling, maybe with friend, maybe with spouse, maybe with somebody else. But think about it. I was thinking about it in my life this week. I feel incredibly blessed. I've been given so many great relationships with mentors, with peers and friends. I think about our, our pastoral staff, some of my best friends in the whole world. We don't just talk about like church programs and what to do on Sunday mornings and some of that stuff as a church. We talk about our families. We talk about our sin. We talk about our motives. We talk about our fears. We, we talk about real stuff. I think about the best relationship I, I have on earth, though, is with my wife. And I don't just say that because, like, I'm a pastor. You're supposed to say that. And she wasn't in the first service. I told the first service that, too, just so you know. She's here today. But, but I'll tell you, and it's not just because she's, like, awesome, which she is awesome. I had one mentor tell me this. The key to a great life here on earth is this. You get one really smart person to make one really dumb decision, and you're set. <laughs> and I did it. <laughs> it was awesome. And so I got her to marry me, but it didn't just happen. It wasn't like an accident. Like, we had a relationship, and I think it's one of the reasons why we have such a great relationship is because we're such great friends, and we enjoy being around. We legitimately enjoy actually being together. In fact, I was traveling some this week, and I would call her, and I didn't just call her because it was like good husband's check-in. I was wanting her to experience the experiences I was experiencing because they're better when we're together. And I think about the experiences we've had. We, obviously, we had a wedding. <laughs> we've had... Like some children together, and so like different experiences. We had some great things, vacations, accomplishments, and we've had some terrible stuff happen. We've had people make really bad decisions that have hurt. We've, had, we've lost people. I remember when my dad died. I didn't really want to talk to anybody but my wife. And when I saw her, we didn't even really talk. We just saw each other and we cried. And it was like she knew, and, and I knew. And, and when I'm with her, I can say stupid stuff, and she just knows. Like, she just gets it, and she's gracious, and I don't have to apologize, I don't have to wonder. It's just like we, we get each other. And that happens through history. And so what happens in real relationships, and we talk about sin with one another, we confess to one another, and we can talk about our insecurities. And do you have that? Maybe with a spouse, maybe with a sibling, maybe with a friend, maybe with a boss, maybe with a parent, maybe you don't have it anywhere. But what about those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ? We say that we're in a relationship with God. Do you have that in your relationship with God? Is it the real thing or is it a fake thing? And I don't mean by it's a fake thing uh, that you don't believe in God. Because maybe you believe in God. Maybe you pray. 
but do you have a real intimate relationship with God? Do you have the real thing? And you think about what Jesus came for. Did Jesus come just so we would believe information about God? Or did Jesus come so we could pass a Bible quiz? Or did Jesus come so that we could be friendly neighbors, nice guys, so that our neighbors would like us and we'd have more friends here? Or did Jesus come to clean up our moral act? Did Jesus come so that we would vote a certain way? Did Jesus come so that we'd tell other people that they're wrong? Or did Jesus come, because he says in John chapter 10, maybe he meant it, that Jesus came so that we could have life, the real thing, and that we could have it abundantly, that we could have exceedingly abundantly beyond what we could ever ask or imagine that experiencing him, the real thing, and is that what you have? That's the question we have to ask ourselves today. Do we have the real thing? So what we're going to do is we continue in this series in the book of Exodus. If you have your Bibles, and we're going to be in Exodus chapter 20. It's the second book in the Old Testament. So at the very beginning of your Bible, Exodus chapter 20. And we started this series last week talking about what we're for, ultimately looking at what God is for, looking at God's characteristics, how he reveals his characteristics in relationship with us and what he's for. And are we representing him well as his followers? And the way we do that is we have the real thing, a real relationship with him. Remember last week we started talking about the Ten Commandments. I tried to dispel some of the the common misconceptions that people have about the Ten Commandments. For some of us, we think we're for the Ten Commandments because we want them in the schools or we want them in the courtroom, and we might not even know what they say. And for those of us who know what they say, we think to ourselves, well, there's these rules that were dropped down from heaven out of the sky, and we're supposed to obey them or else God gets mad at us. And it's neither one of those things. It's not just something that's supposed to be in a classroom or in a courtroom. And it's not something that was just dropped down from the skies that are rules. In fact, these rules that are given to us are actually commandments, vows, promissory language that's used here, relational language, because they're given to us in a context. See, Scripture always happens in context. And the context here for this passage of Scripture in Exodus that we refer to as the Ten Commandments is a relational context. It's given to a people that have already been redeemed, given to a people that have already been rescued, given to a people that have been delivered. They were walking in bondage, now they're walking in freedom. And we talked about last week how it doesn't matter if your name's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Noah, Scott, your name, that we're saved by grace through faith. It's not our works. It's always been by grace through faith. And these people have been selected, the Israelites, by God's grace. And they crossed the Red Sea by faith. And now they're walking in freedom. And God gives them this language. It's like they come to the altar, like a husband and wife come to the altar about how this relationship would work best, this covenant relationship that they're going to have with one another. And remember the scene is very intense. It's one of those days, like 9-11, you would never forget. The smoke's coming down from heaven. The cloud's coming from heaven. It's majestic, but it's terrible at the same time. And the mountain's shaking in chapter 19, verse 18. The mountain is shaking violently, and there's the, the sound of the trumpet, the sound of his voice, and there's thunder, and there's lightning, and then God speaks, and here's what he says. And God spoke all these words, chapter 20, verse 1. And verse 2, I am the Lord, your God, personal God. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, You shall have no other gods before me. And we talked about last week how that doesn't mean that he's number one on the list of all the gods. It's not that he ranks number one above all the other gods we have in our lives, that he is the God. And there's only one God, one true God. He can have no, that word before means he doesn't have a rival, he doesn't have an opponent, no one compares to him. And so he is the list. You have no other gods before me. And then the second commandment, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them 
4, because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So here we have where God's speaking directly to these people. Remember, he's not just speaking to Moses, and Moses doesn't just bring tablets down from the mountain. He's speaking to two million Israelites here. He says, I am the Lord, your God, your personal God. You are to have no other God before me because no one rivals me. No one compares to me. I am to have no opponent because I'm the real thing. So don't have any fakes. That's the second rule. The second commandment, no idols, have no other idols, no other fake God. Don't make for yourself a false God. And here's why, because I am the real thing. And that's our first point today, that he is the real thing. God is the real thing. And once you've had the real thing, why would you want a substitute? Like, once you've had Cheerios, why do you want O's of great cheer? Once you've had Dr. Pepper, why do you want Dr. Thunder? Dr. Thunder. I was telling my wife, I saw this thing, I was looking up all this fake stuff this week. They actually have Sunbucks coffee, and it's got green awning and everything. Like, who wants Sunbucks coffee when you have Starbucks coffee on like every corner in America? Why, why do you want that? So the first service. There was a time in my life where I liked TV dinners. <laughs> they're fast and they're cheap, so it was college time. They still have those benefits. But now I've eaten those, and now I've eaten my wife's cooking. My wife can cook some stuff up, and I'm not just saying that so I get a good lunch today. She can cook. Now when I go to eat a TV dinner, it's like, man, that tastes like a boot. Like, who wants to eat that? Once you've had the real thing, why would you want a substitute? And think about what's happening in this passage as God says this to these people. He's speaking directly to them. It's his voice. Hey, this is me. I'm real. And then he summarizes their, not only their story, but at least for probably five or six generations of people's story when he says, I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of the land of slavery, out of the land of Egypt. And so in two little phrases, he summarizes 400 years of history. Can you imagine if your life was summarized in two little phrases in the Bible? If you got a verse, what would it say? And here he talks about these people. that They had ancestors. It was like my father was crying out, and his father was crying out, and his father, maybe his father, maybe his father were crying out the same prayer. Release us from bondage. Don't you think after so many years of doing that, you might think to yourself, is God even real? And then you read in Exodus chapter 3, and you've got to read chapter 1 through 19 to get the full context here. But in chapter 3, God says this, I heard their prayers, and I saw what the slave drivers were doing to them. And I was concerned. He had real concern. He had real compassion. It wasn't just he knew facts about things that were happening to people. It wasn't just statistics. These were people that he cared about, and he saw it. And he was concerned, and he had compassion. And when he says, am I not the one that freed you from slavery? Am I not the one that brought you out of the land of Egypt? Do you know what he's saying there? He's saying, remember your story. Remember how I came and I protected you through this? Remember how all the firstborn died? Some of you are firstborn. And I protected you? You remember all the plagues? Remember the whole thing with the Nile River when the Nile turned into blood? That was me. That's what he's saying here. Remember the whole thing with the flies? That was me. The gnats? That was me too. Remember that whole deal with the frogs? That was gross, wasn't it? But it was me. The locust, the darkness. Remember how you could feel the darkness? It was so heavy. But I took the Israelites, I took my people, and I set them apart, and they had light. Because I'm a different God, and I set myself apart, and so I set my people apart, and I want you to be different. And he said, you know when you were set apart? That was me. All that stuff that happened, that was me. Remember how you went to walk across the Red Sea? That was me. I'm the one who parted the waters. I'm the one that, that, that took the water and put it up on both sides and, and let you walk across. That was me. 
And you know how, how when you got across, you didn't have anything to eat? <laughs> that manna? That was me. I wonder what that tasted like. God made some food? You think God can cook it up? I bet you that was good food. Now, they get tired of it after a little while because it's what we do. Well, we become ungrateful. But he's saying, you know who protected you and provided for you and who guided you and who rescued you and who redeemed you and who delivered you and who brought you out of bondage into freedom? That was me. And what about your story? How would he summarize that in those two little phrases? He's saying, that was me and I'm real. So don't settle for a fake. And don't settle for an idol. And so what is an idol? Many of us, when we think of idolatry, we kind of get a primitive thought in our mind, don't we? We think of the little statues people bow down to, and we probably most of us as Americans don't even really see idols, unless you watch House Hunters International and somebody's like looking at a house and there's a shrine, you're like, I wouldn't buy that house, I'm spiritual, you know, <laughs> a little shrine in there, pick the other one. Anyway, any rate, you don't do that, or, or maybe you go to like Chinese restaurant and there's like a little Buddha up on the buffet, <laughs> a little fat dude with incense sticking out of his stomach and you're shaking your head like, I'm going to eat the rice underneath that guy, worship me, you know, right? But, you don't bow down, you don't sing to it, of course, but to even see it, it seems ridiculous to us because we don't understand idolatry. See, most people that have those false religions, they don't worship those statues either. And in fact, when you look at what happened in Egypt with all those plagues, God was actually battling the false gods of Egypt. And we talk about how in our culture we've got all these gods that we can worship. There was no culture more polytheistic that had more gods than the people of Egypt. And so when he did these things, he was showing, I'm different than those gods. And I can, do, I can do things to demonstrate to you that I have power even over those false gods. And you know what the people were worshiping? It wasn't frogs and it wasn't flies and it wasn't gnats. It wasn't statues. It were things like the fertility god. And so if you struggle with infertility, guess what god you go pray to? Or it's the god of prosperity. And if you, if you want to be rich, then guess what god you go pray to? Or it's the god where you, you can get a relationship. Or it's the god where you can... And it's the idea behind it. And the statue was just a representation of what they were actually worshiping. And when you look through the scriptures, idolatry... It's more a matter of a heart than it is about a statue. And you see what the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament, Colossians chapter 3. It's up on the screen, verse 5, he says this, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Sounds more like a heart issue than a statue, doesn't it? You see, this is what idolatry actually is biblically. It's when we make, and notice that the, it says in Exodus, don't make for yourself a God. That's not just make a statue. It's when we make something play the role of God that was never intended to play the role of God. It's when we make something central. It's when we make it supreme, when we make it ultimate, when we put it in the place of God. And it can be a lot of things that we can beat up on. It can be money. It can be power. It can be success. It can be, oftentimes it's good things. It's our kids. It's our marriage. It's our family. It's our ministry. It's those things that we elevate to the place where they drive what we do. And it's actually interesting in this passage that it says here, don't worship them, you shall not worship them or bow down to them. Well, who sings to their family? I mean, who sings to their job? Who sings to money? Who sings to sex? Who sings to these things that we would say would be these false gods? No one does that. But I was having a conversation with a friend that's a leader in our church, a couple of weeks ago, we were having breakfast, we were just chatting through things. We started to talk about how we're all worshipers, and we're all worshiping all the time. And this guy's actually an NC State fan, which should be a comfort to you if you're a guest and you're wondering, <laughs> we let everybody come to church here. Uh, he's an NC State fan, and uh, he was talking about how when he's at an NC State game, if they score a touchdown, he jumps up and cheers. It's rare, but he does it. He jumps up and cheers at that moment. My team lost yesterday, too. Anyway, but, um, he said that no one has to like, nudge him when they score. 
No one has to like say, hey, they, you need to, he doesn't even have to think about it. He doesn't think to himself, they just did a good thing. I should stand now. He just does it. It's an expression of what's going on inside of him because he has affections for this team. There's nothing wrong with having affections for your marriage or for another person or for your kids or even for NC State. Okay? It doesn't, there's nothing wrong with that. It's when we make those things central, when we make them the driving force, when we make them ultimate, when we make them supreme, that's when we worship them. And the word here for worship is actually very interesting in Hebrew because it doesn't have anything to do with singing. In fact, worship isn't singing. That's an expression. That's a way to express what's actually going on inside. But what the word here actually means in Hebrew is to serve. That's what it is to worship. To serve. Don't, bow, don't serve or bow down to these false idols. And so what is it to serve? It's when it drives what we do in our lives. It's when it's the thing that our, our free thoughts, that, that's where it goes to because it consumes our thoughts. It consumes our money. It consumes our time. It consumes our energy. That's when we make it God. That's why Jesus says in the New Testament, you can't serve two masters because there's only one thing that can be the driving force of your life. There's only one thing that was meant to be in the place of God, and it's God himself. And when we put a person there, it doesn't matter how great that person is. They were never meant to be in that role, and so they will let you down. And we put money there. It doesn't matter how much money you have, you'll always want a little bit more. And we put success there. It doesn't matter how successful you are. At the end of your life, you will feel empty. If those are the driving forces of your life, because they were never meant to play that role. We make them God when we put them in that place. And God's the only one that was intended to be in that place. A great way for you to diagnose whether you have these idols, this is an exercise I did this week, is just ask yourself, if this were taken away from my life, I'd have a hard time going on. If this were taken away, then you'd struggle with whether you have a meaning to continue to move on. Money, job, children, put in the blank, fill in the blank. Your freedom, you go to prison, your health, your image, your looks, your talents, your skills. What is it? That if it were taken away, you would struggle with the meaning of life. And I started thinking about this because I was reading on a plane this week, uh, Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, which I recommend to you. It makes a great point in the book that idols can't just be removed, they must be replaced. But the problem is we oftentimes replace them with another idol. We replace alcohol with self-improvement. We replace loneliness with marriage. We replace, and we just continue to replace idols. And it's not until we have the real thing that we can stop replacing. But he says in the book, when he first starts off, and what gripped me and got me thinking about this idea of removing things, was he talks about the financial crisis that took place in the middle of 2008, we call it the recession as Americans, but it was a global financial crisis. And he goes around the world and talks about different news events that took place. And there were people committing, there was a tragic string of suicides that took place. The CFO uh, for Freddie Mac, the loan place, hung himself in his basement. The guy that was in charge of some Stearns real estate investment group uh, shot himself behind the steering wheel of his red Jaguar. There's another guy who sold his company to J.P. Morgan Chase, and they told him they weren't going to hire him. So he overdosed on drugs, jumped out of his, out of his office building from 29 stories up. It was every type of, uh, any type of suicide you could imagine, they did it. It was all these people in the financial industry, and what Keller ended up pointing out was this. It was eerily reminiscent of what happened in 1929 when the stock market crashed. So you take away someone's God, then why would they want to go on? There's no meaning in life. And so what is it for you? Is it your kids? Like if you lost your child, or your spouse, or is it your job, or your reputation, or some skills, and maybe it's money, or maybe you hear those stories and go, I would never do that for money, but is it something else? Because whenever it's something else and it's not the real thing, 
It can be taken from you. Circumstances can take any of those things. And you know what happens is when you have the real thing, it changes the way you read verses in Scripture. Like verses like Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39 take on new meaning. When God's central, think about this. It says, the Apostle Paul, he's had some incredible and some terrible experiences. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor divorce, nor tornado, nor job loss, nor being disfigured, nor losing talents, nor losing children, nor losing all of my money. For I'm convinced that none of these things, none of these things can separate me from the love of Christ Jesus. Verse 39. It doesn't matter what happens in all of creation, so you can make the list as long as you want. Not height, nor death, nor anything else, and all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's when you have the real thing, the only thing that was ever supposed to be central in our lives, which is God. And we talk about him being exclusive, and people say that we're narrow-minded because Jesus says he's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except for through him. Do you know why he's able to say that? It's because of John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Do you know what only begotten means? Unique one. One of a kind. He's in a category by himself, par excellence, Jesus Christ. There's no one else like him. And then you go to the Old Testament and you see here, God's very exclusive, even in the Old Testament. You shall have no other gods before me. No fakes, because I'm the only one. And you look at the passage and he doesn't leave much room here, does he? He says, don't make for yourself an idol in the form of anything. And he could stop there, but he gives an example. In heaven above, anything in space, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. Let me be very clear. That means nothing. No other God. Because I am the real thing. You shall not serve any other. But it's hard sometimes in life, isn't it? He's invisible. And you wonder, is he, is he really real? And you kind of go through the motions. And sometimes as you're living at that plastic level, and it's kind of just he's an acquaintance, and he's there, and you believe in him. I was talking to a friend this week. He's a pastor out on the West Coast and pastor in a church for about 10 years. He's writing a book on prayer. And he was talking about how really basically he felt guilty writing a book on prayer because he didn't feel like one of these huge prayer giants. And just talking about his own prayer life and what it's like. And so, you know, God, I really believe you, but I don't really pray like I do. And he was walking with his child. He had a little baby girl, eight months old. Her name's Abby. And he's wearing one of those things where you strap your child to your chest. I don't know if you've ever seen those. They look like they only sell them on infomercials, but we like all have to have them now. <laughs> but uh, what the kid sits on your chest and they can't see you. They must think they're flying. But anyway, uh, you strap the kid to their chest. And he had one of those deals on. And he was on this walk around his neighborhood. And he was talking to God. And he was, he was saying, God, I don't pray like some of these prayer giants. And, and I don't know, just, just pray and then run out, of, I run, out, I run out of stuff to say. He said, he's a pastor. But anyway, he runs out of stuff to say. And, and he said, I was out there praying. I said, I want to pray. Like, I really mean it. And he started praying for his daughter. He prayed stuff that probably many of us as fathers have prayed, you know, help Abby come to Jesus at a young age and take a lot of people to you, bring a lot of people to you, and prayed this prayer and kind of went on. And then at the end, he said, almost like a tag, I didn't even know where it came from. He said, and even as a baby, have her lead people to you. <laughs> she's a baby. She can't even talk. You know, she's not like super baby. You know, she's not able to, he thought it was kind of silly that he even prayed it. Next day, he gets up and it's his day off and he's hanging out with the family and took the other three kids to the to school and had little Abby and his wife and they went on a little date together and then they were going to leave that weekend for family camp and in order to do that they were going to rent an RV one of those little pop-up trailers that you pull behind your car and uh, he didn't have a car that had air brakes on it so I guess that's what the RV place recommends is you have air brakes on your car so he called his friend up he was going to borrow his friend's car he told his wife I'll take Abby with me to go pick up the RV drives over to his friend's house in his minivan 
and his friend's not there. So he sits in the driveway for about 30 minutes. Abby's in the back seat. She falls asleep, and he's just talking on his phone. Finally, his friend shows up, so they hop in the truck together. It has the air brakes on it. They drive it to the RV store. The RV store is about 30 minutes away. And they start going through this whole rigmarole. He didn't know he had to have renter's insurance, and the RV was supposed to rent, hadn't been returned, and there's all this stuff going on. It ended up taking a long time at the RV store. And after a little while, his wife called him, and all the details worked out, and he started to explain what had happened. And she said, well, I'm just concerned about Abby. And then it hit him. He didn't have Abby. He had left her in a van about 30 minutes away, and it was about 100 degrees outside. And his first thought was, I just killed my daughter. And he cried out, God help me. And he told his wife what happened. She grabbed a hammer. The other three kids head over to their friend's house to break the window out. They called the friend. They called 911. They opened the van door. And inside the eight-month-old little Abby, she's just sitting there laughing, having a great time. And they took her inside, and they washed her off in the sink. And her skin was all red, but she didn't even have a temperature. I took her to the hospital. They had to take her to the hospital. They required that they take her to the hospital. And when the paramedics showed up, they said, where's the baby that was in the car? And they saw the baby. They just didn't believe that was the same baby. And the fire chief who showed up, he had been a fire chief for 22 years. He came in and said, this never happens. He said, usually children in a car like that, for 30 minutes or less, they die. And took her to the hospital. Her oxygen levels were at 100%. Didn't even have a fever. And after an hour, they let her let her go home, and the dad was still struggling with guilt, and, you know, I left her in there, and, and I could have killed my daughter, and the next day, she stood up for the first time in her life. She'd only been crawling for a couple weeks, and she said her first words. <laughs> I don't know what happened in that car that day, but uh, it was, something happened, and he said, I don't know what happened in the car. I don't know what God was doing with my little baby during that time, but then he said this, this Jesus stuff, it works. It's real. Well, that's his story. And you go to this passage and you see the people in Exodus, you know what their story was? 400 years of bondage. And then the plagues and the deliverance and the guidance and the redemption. And what's your story? Is he real? Amen. You just grew up in church. Just kind of always did this thing. And you're good. You're a moral person. You know Bible verses. You maybe teach a Sunday school class. And, but is it real? Do you have the real thing? Because he is the real thing. And not only is he the real thing, and does he want the real thing for you, but he wants the real thing from you, and that's our second point. Not only does he want the real thing for you, he wants the real thing from you. And you see it when he explains the rule here. He gives a reason for the rule. He doesn't just tell us the rule, have no other idols, don't, don't have any idols, don't have any fake gods. He says a reason for the rule. In verse 5, he says, you shall not bow down to them or worship them for or because. Here's the reason. I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Here's the reason why I don't want you to have any idols. Here's the reason why you can't have any fakes, no phonies, only the real thing, because I'm jealous. Now, some of us struggle with that idea, don't we? God's a jealous God. doesn't seem like an attribute that should be true of God. In fact, uh, Oprah Winfrey, if you've heard of Oprah, <laughs> uh, if you've heard of Oprah Winfrey, she says this is why she can't believe in the God of the Bible. And she was 27, 28 years old. She heard a preacher preaching, and he's preaching about God, and he's preaching about God's a loving and omnipresent, and he's all. And then she said, then he said that God was jealous. In her words, she said, I was caught up in the rapture of the moment until he said that God is jealous. And she said, how can I worship a God that's jealous of me? Now, I don't know if I'll ever get an opportunity to sit down and talk with Oprah Winfrey, but if I ever get an opportunity to talk with Oprah, my plan, my desire would be to explain to her, now, Oprah, you misunderstand jealousy. God is not jealous of you. 
God is jealous for you, Oprah. And God is jealous for you. He's jealous for me. One commentator, Philip Ryken, he says it this way. You could change the word jealous to zealous. He is zealous with a burning passion for us. See, the problem is we have misconceptions about what his jealousy is. And we think that he's jealous. He's not jealous of the false gods. He's not jealous of us. He's not jealous that we've chosen other ways. He's jealous for us. He's got a burning passion, a zeal, a desire for us, and he pursues us as a result of that jealousy. That's what it is that drives him to us. It's the burning love and passion that he has for us. He's jealous for you. And we misunderstand jealousy oftentimes. We think of it like it's an attribute of somebody who's insecure. And oftentimes for us, that's what it is. Like, I'm jealous because you have something I don't have. You've got skills, or you've got a house, or you've got a job, or you've got looks, or you've got something that I don't have. And so it's out of my insecurity that I'm jealous for those things. And we think of jealousy like envy, wanting something that doesn't belong to you. And that's not God at all, because think about it. Two things. How could he be insecure? There's only been one self-sufficient being ever, and it's him. He doesn't have a need. He's self-sufficient. So there's no insecurity. And envy of us? Think about that for a minute. Envy is when you want something that doesn't belong to you. We belong to him on two fronts. One, he created us. Male and female, he created them in the image of God, in the image of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He created them, and it was good. He made us. He owns us. But then we sin, so he purchases us. We belong to him. First Corinthians chapter 6, it's by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're not our own. We've been bought at a price. We belong to him. We doubly belong to him. And so his jealousy for us isn't an envy in the sense that it's something that doesn't belong to him that he wants. We do belong to him, and it's not because he's insecure. It's a zeal. It's a burning passion for us. It's a jealousy like a husband would have if he saw his wife with someone else. It's a righteous jealousy because she belongs to him. It's not that he's jealous of that man. He's jealous for his wife. That's why when you look through the scriptures and you see idolatry talked about, it doesn't matter which prophet you look at. You look at Hosea, you look at Isaiah, you look at Ezekiel, you look at Jeremiah. Idolatry is called adultery. And remember our context from last week. God's already got a relationship with these people. They're already redeemed people. There's a history there. Now they're at the altar and they're talking about covenant language. Here's what it looks like to live in a covenant relationship with me. They're saying their vows. Here's what I want you to do. No other God before me. Don't have any phonies. And that's why when you see through the scriptures that it's described as adultery when you see idolatry in the New Testament, we're called his bride. He's the bridegroom. We're the wife, but we're an unfaithful spouse because we go after idols. And sometimes the idol's marriage, and sometimes it's ministry, and sometimes it's money, and sometimes it's something else. And he's saying, no, don't do that. And here's why. Because I have a burning passion for you. And you know what that means? He'll keep coming after us and keep pursuing us. And when we're faithless, he's faithful. And every time he comes because of his faithfulness, because of his righteousness, because of his justice, when we confess our sins, he's faithful and he'll remove the idols. And he'll cleanse the unrighteousness. And restore us into relationship with him. See, as much as he pursues us and he does everything to come after us, we're still given a choice. And we can choose one of two things. We can choose idolatry. We can choose disobedience. And we can choose obedience. We can choose love. And that's what we see in the next part of the passage. There's consequences and there's results for our choices. The consequences, the negative results happen when we choose disobedience, and it's called hatred in the passage that I'll read to you in just a moment. Remember what Jesus says in the New Testament. You can't have two gods. You'll love one, you'll hate the other. You'll serve or worship one, and you'll despise the other. There's not room in your life to have two things that are the driving force in your life. 
two things that are ultimate, two things that are supreme. You'll love one, you'll hate the other. And look at this language that he uses here in the book of Exodus. He says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, those who choose idolatry. It's not emotional language here. It's that you choose disobedience, that you choose to have a false god. But, contrast, showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. There's a consequence and there's a result. The consequence is when you sin, when you choose idolatry, when you choose to make something else central, whether it's money, whether it's the family, whether it's your work, whether it's whatever it is you put on the throne of your life, when you make that central, there's consequences in here in this text that says to the third and fourth generation. And many of us struggle with this idea in the Old Testament of generational curses and, and how is it, and maybe that's why so-and-so was an alcoholic and then his son was an alcoholic and, his one, and maybe that's why that happens and we try to figure it out and put the pieces together. And it's not that the people are being punished in the future generations. Okay, the third and fourth generation aren't being punished because of the sin that one guy did, but there's consequences for it. And if that person chooses to then make the same decisions, they're going to have the same consequences. There's going to be punishment for that. But see, elsewhere in Scripture, you read in the book of Deuteronomy, you read in the book of Ezekiel, it says the sons won't be killed for their father's sin, nor will the father for the sons. They can be held accountable individually, but there's a corporate sense in which there's a ripple effect in everything that we do. And what's being said here is there's a ripple effect for our sin. And that's true no matter what your sin is. And you've seen this, you've experienced it before. How many times have you met somebody and they start telling you their story and when you really get to know them and they say, and my dad was an alcoholic. Why? Why do they tell you that? Are they introducing you to their dad? Nope. It's because it affected them. Or my parents got divorced, his mom ran off, and dad was abusive, or whatever details they tell you, some story. And they, why are they telling you that? So you can get to know their parents? No. It's because it affected them. I had an older, wiser pastor tell me one time. He'd been pastoring for 32 years, seen every kind of sin you can imagine, and how it's affected all kinds of different people. He said the sin is oftentimes private. It's never personal. It's oftentimes private. It's never personal. And the example he gave was a simple example. He said, look, if I skip my devotions one day, I skip time with God one day, I know it. Three days, my wife knows it. Seven days, the whole church knows it. And they might not know the exact thing that took place or didn't take place, but sin, it can be private. It's never personal. There's always a ripple effect. And it's not just the big ones. It's not just you know, adultery or stealing. And if the boss sins, it affects the whole office. When dad sins, it impacts the whole house. There's a ripple effect to our sin. And what it says here in this passage, to the third and fourth generation. And we live in this lie where we think we can compartmentalize our lives in so many different ways that if I just sin here, as long as I'm okay over here, then everything works out. And you don't realize, no, there's a ripple effect for your sin. And that pastor, when he was telling me this, he said, it's like if I'm in a rowboat with somebody and they decide they're going to drill a hole in their spot on the rowboat. The whole thing's going down. I read an article this week. There was a guy that actually tried to open the door on a plane that he was on. I don't know if he was sitting in the exit row. Maybe he felt like, this is my space. And it's, it can be private. It's never personal. See, it impacts the whole, everybody who's involved is impacted by this. And a lot of times we look at this and we think to ourselves, well, that makes sense. So the third and fourth generation, well, you've got to remember, this is a different culture than we live in. We live in a highly individualistic and a highly upwardly mobile culture. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. That's where we live. It's just what it is. They lived in a very family-centered culture. See, they couldn't hop on an airplane and go move to another. See, think about that for a moment. They couldn't do that. They all lived together as a family, oftentimes in the same house for three or four generations. 
if not in the same house, at least in the same little area. What's being said here is when you sin, it has a ripple effect on everybody that you influence, everybody you come into contact with. You know what? It's what happens when you sin and you're in the body of Christ. And I've talked with individuals here at our church. I've talked to after the service before. Talk, I think of specifically one guy that I was talking to recently. He knew he was about to sin. And he claimed that he believed that it was wrong. I'm not sure what he actually believed. But if we're talking about it, I was pleading with him, don't do it, don't, because you don't understand. This isn't just your life. You're impacting all of our lives, because at the very least, it's this. We come together on a mission to connect people to Jesus for life change, and because you're on our team, I now have to stop focusing on the mission of reaching new people for Jesus so I can come back and deal with your thing. And I told this particular individual, I feel like I'm spending more time on your stuff than you are. And do you know what this means for me? There's one thing I can't get back in life, and it's my time. If I waste it, it's like slow suicide. You can get more money, you can get more people, you can get more friends, you can get more all this. You can never get more time. And I'm spending my time on this thing when I should be focused on the mission of reaching new people because you're on our team, and because we're in a battle, and you're a wounded soldier, I've got to stop, and I've got to focus on this, and you're not even focusing on this. Would you please stop? Do you see how there's a ripple effect in all of our lives? Some of you, you're in sin. Stop, please. For all of our sake. It might be private, and you think no one knows about it. It's not personal. It's impacting you. It's impacting other relationships. It changes everything. Please stop. People want to help. This is why we need to live in real relationships with one another. This is why we want you in group, is this kind of thing. It's not so that we can look at someone. That's so I can look and go, hey, you've got a different sin than I have, and I'm better than you. Let me tell you how to fix your situation. No, I've got sin too. But we walk with one another through this thing so that we can be the most effective possibly to connect as many people as possible to Jesus Christ for life change. And we don't want our own people getting killed in the process. So you have any real relationships like that? There's a ripple effect that says here to the third and fourth generation, but look at the promises far better than the consequence. This is verse 6, but, contrast, showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Three or four to a thousand. Talk about a contrast, but showing love to a thousand generations. I started thinking about that and thinking about my own story. And think about when somebody has loved Jesus Christ, really, with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and they love their neighbor as themselves, and what that looks like. You have no idea, if you just put God on the throne of your life, what it looks like and how you can impact beyond what you could ever ask or imagine to a thousand generations. And in my story, I was thinking about this week. There was a guy who, who loved Jesus back in 1959 and took a little booklet that explained the gospel and, and stuck it in a toilet paper thing in a stall in a factory back in Michigan. This guy walks into the bathroom that day. His name's Lazarus. Lazarus grabs the steel. Lazarus is a foul-mouthed Assyrian dude who likes to drink a lot. Takes this booklet, sticks it in his pocket, reads it about 10 different times, ends up placing his faith in Jesus Christ and takes his family to church. They come to church Sunday, and they sit on the front row. They don't know any better. <laughs> They're new. And so they come, they sit on the front row. And his 11-year-old son named Mike, here's this preacher, talk about a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you want a relationship with Jesus Christ, come down here. Come forward this morning. They went and they got in the car after the service. And Lazarus turns around, and he says to his family, he says, what that guy was just talking about, that's what happened to me. Mike says, I don't know. I don't know about what that pastor just said back at that church. But I know I like my new dad a whole lot better than the old dad. So he placed his faith in Jesus Christ. He grows up. He leads his family to Jesus. His daughter ends up starting a Bible study at my public high school. And Mike, the one-time 11-year-old kid, comes and teaches the Bible study and shares Jesus with me, and I place my faith in Jesus. 
and I tell some of you about Jesus, and some of you tell your kids about Jesus, and they tell their neighbors, and they tell kids about Jesus, and they're going to tell their kids about Jesus, and it's a ripple effect beyond what you can ever ask or imagine. So what's your story? That's mine. Who loved Jesus so much that they told someone who told someone who told someone who told someone that told you? See, there's a ripple effect for our obedience as well. I've been thinking about something just personally, not like to reveal programs and stuff, but thinking about the programs of our church lately. And then thinking about the book of Acts and what the church was like in Acts. Thinking about the book of Acts, they never had four spiritual laws. They didn't have evangelism explosion. They didn't have any evangelism training that I know of. You can read through and tell me, send me a verse or something by email uh, if you find one. But they didn't seem to have any of that. But do you realize they're the reason why we've heard the gospel? That was 2,000 years ago. Not 1,000 generations yet, but 2,000 years ago, they were the first church in the book of Acts. And what happened in the book of Acts was that they had a real encounter with the living God, and it so transformed their lives that they, it changed their families, and it changed their finances. They started giving everything away, and they started sharing with one another and caring for one another and not being self-centered. And People saw that. They saw what they were for, and then therefore people were drawn to that, and it changed the world. It was revolutionary. It was a revolution of love because their hearts were changed by having an encounter with the real living God. And then I think about American Christianity and what we should do as a church. You know, statistics say that 50% of people that are born-again Christians, that are believers in Jesus Christ, will share their faith with one person a year. 50% won't share their faith with anyone. 50% with one person a year is pretty mediocre, uh, but 50% won't share with anyone. And I think to myself, so what needs to happen? We can guilt people with statistics. We can motivate them with inspiring stories. We can train them. Or they could have an encounter with the real living God that transforms them at the heart level. And then how, when you've had the real thing, would you ever settle for a substitute? See, I have no idea what's going on in the hearts of the 50% that don't share at all, or even the 50% that only share one. But I would wonder, this is just a wonder, just me being judgmental and transparent about it. I wonder if it's because they've settled for a plastic version of Christianity. I don't think it's because they don't believe in God, and I don't think it's because they don't know verses. But if they experience the real thing, and then the question is, what about me and what about you? Because he is the real thing, and he wants the real thing for you, and he wants the real thing from you. And so the question ultimately is, do we have the real thing? That's the question I leave you with today. Let's pray. Father God, I come before you, and God, we just ask that we would have you. Will you please invade our lives? Will you please invade our minds? Will you please invade our marriages, our workplace, every aspect of who we are? Don't let us compartmentalize. God, but please invade us in such a way that we're changed by you. I pray if there's any that don't have a relationship with you today, that today they would place their faith in your son, Jesus Christ. In fact, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you can start one today. And it's very simple. Admit your sin. Believe upon Jesus Christ. Place your faith in Jesus Christ, your trust in him and ask him to be your savior. And you can do that right now as you sit in your seat, just praying a prayer like this. Father God, I admit that I'm a sinner. I acknowledge my sin before you. Other things have been God in my life. And I want the real thing. I want you. I want your son, Jesus Christ. Please forgive me of my sin and give me that life. And I receive that today. And Father, I pray for those that are believers, but we've believed a lie. We've exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship created things rather than the creator of all things. And God, we've put marriage or ministry or family or money or some other thing on the throne of our lives, and we want to repent of that, but we want you to replace it with yourself. Will you please sit on the throne of our lives and please have us experience what it is to worship you? 
with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you placed your faith in Jesus Christ today, I'll just ask you before you leave, if you take your connection card and mark that on there, you can just drop it in the offering boxes on your way out. For the rest of you, don't forget that uh, we have group link tonight. We'd love to get you connected in uh, community groups with some real relationships with other believers, and uh, we'll see you next week. I love you.